couple of announcements before we get started. Uh, first of all, there's going to be a prep school teachers meeting scheduled for Sunday, December 15th, right after class. Sunday, December 15th, prep school teachers meeting. And then we are in need of another prep school teacher, uh, second hour on Sunday mornings for the 5th to the 7th grade class. So we need a teacher for that 5th to 7th grade class on uh, second hour Sunday morning. This week we are celebrating Thanksgiving. So I thought that uh, I got a couple of things in email this week that I thought were timely. Remind us of some things we need to be thankful for. The first is a information about the Medal of Honor Award for a man named Joseph Jacob Foss. Joe Foss was a captain in the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve in the Marine Fighting Squadron 121 over Guadalcanal, and his citation for the Medal of Honor was covering the period from 9 October to 19 November 1942. He was originally from uh, South Dakota. And the citation reads that he was awarded the Medal of Honor for outstanding heroism and courage above and beyond the call of duty as Executive Officer of Marine Fighting Squadron 121 First Marine Aircraft Wing at Guadalcanal. Engaging in almost daily combat with the enemy, from 9 October to 19 November 1942, Captain Foss personally shot down 23 Japanese planes and damaged others so severely that their destruction was extremely probable. In addition, during this period, he successfully led a large number of escort missions, skillfully covering reconnaissance bombing and photographic planes as well as surface craft. On 15 January 1943, he added three more enemy planes to his already brilliant successes for a record of aerial combat achievement unsurpassed in this war. Boldly searching out and approaching enemy force on 25 January, Captain Foss led his eight F-4F Marine planes and four Army P-38s into action and, undaunted by tremendously superior numbers, intercepted and struck with such force that four Japanese fighters were shot down and the bombers were turned back without releasing a single bomb. His remarkable flying skill, inspiring leadership, and indomitable fighting spirit were distinctive factors in the defense of strategic American positions on Guadalcanal. It's to men like that and their heroism and their dedication and their service to this nation that we have the freedom that we have. And I think we need to be very thankful that we live in a nation and that we've had people like that who have been willing to serve the nation and to fight and, in many cases, to die for our freedom. On this email I got, there was attached a note from his daughter, Connie. She notes, this is the 47th day that Papa has been in a coma. He is now in a skilled nursing facility in Scottsdale and receiving very good care. However, he has developed a little pneumonia and is no longer breathing on his own. We have decided that it is now time to tell him that it's okay to go home to meet Jesus. Mom will be talking to him this morning. We're certain that he hears us at least most of the time. I'll be spending the afternoon with him telling him that we will see him in heaven and to keep a spot warm for us. I know the angels are hovering around him just waiting for him to say goodbye. They will safely take him to his real home. God tells us, and it is true, that we will that we will give, he will give us no more than we can bear. I'm learning that God's idea of how much I can bear is not the same as mine. Please pray for all of us. And then there was another note, and this is written by a Lieutenant Colonel Rick Jones, who is a career Air Force officer currently stationed at the Pentagon. And just recently, he was in the Pentagon cafeteria, and afterward he wrote the following. I just witnessed something I don't think I'll ever forget. I was down near the cafeteria in the Pentagon meeting a friend for lunch, and I saw a very large crowd of people inside. I walked in and soon found myself standing less than three feet away from our commander-in-chief and right beside the Secretary of Defense and a bunch of Secret Service folks. President Bush was walking around shaking hands and thanking all of us for what we do. He kept saying to people, don't worry, as if to say, I've got it under control. He must have shaken a thousand hands or more. What particularly struck me was his presence. 
not a particularly large man in stature, but he had an aura of a giant, a smile on his face, yet you can sense he was a man on a mission, a man of purpose and conviction. There, there was just this feeling that he is the man, and he is in charge. He had a quiet confidence that was deafening. Then a group of folks just behind me started singing, God Bless America, and in no time the entire room, which was packed, was singing the song. It was enough to give anyone goosebumps. There was a dry eye in the place. I couldn't see it, probably because my eyes weren't too dry. It was just one of those once-in-a-lifetime experiences that I shall never forget. After God Bless America, there were a few chants of USA, 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 followed by a lot of applause. When President Bush finally made his way toward the entrance, he turned with his confident smile and waved at everyone, and the room just erupted in cheers and whistles and applause. I've been to professional football games where the noise wasn't that loud. It was just a wonderful experience, and it made me so very thankful that we have a man like George W. Bush as our president, and so very thankful to be an American. So tonight, as we prepare for our study of the Word, as we have a few moments in silent prayer, it's a tremendous opportunity for us to give thanks for the fact that we live in a nation where we still have the freedoms that we have, that we can still gather together and worship, that our families sleep securely at night, and that these freedoms, we need to pray that these freedoms and this security continues. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, give you the opportunity to use First John 1 9 if necessary. Give, uh, well, Jim's gone, but give one of the deacons the opportunity to turn the heater off because I'm sweltering up here. There you are. And uh, <laughs> Bryce is up there. There's no heat upstairs. Bryce is saying he's got an icicle hanging off his nose, but it's hot down here. So we will uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we have this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word, that you have blessed us so much by giving us the opportunity to live in this nation. You have given us the opportunities to have the freedoms that we have and to enjoy the presentation of your word in a way that is truly unique in the history of Christianity and the history of the world. So much has been given to us as a nation. So much has been supplied to us through so many fantastic Bible teachers and so many uh, wonderful pastors and teachers who have uh, given us so much of your truth. And yet, in this era where there is so much, so much plenty, there is such a strong rejection of your word. Father, we know that as goes the believer, so goes the nation, and we pray that you would continue to uh, bless this nation because there are believers in this nation yet who still actively support missions, who are sending out missionaries throughout the world, men who are men and women who faithfully teach your word, men and women who faithfully communicate the gospel and who are having a tremendous impact. And because of the wealth, the affluence of this nation, uh, they are supported and they are supplied logistically to carry on that mission. Father, we pray that you would continue to watch over us, continue to give wisdom and guidance to our national leaders, to our president, to those in his cabinet, those on the National Security Council, those who serve in the military and in political positions of leadership, that they might make wise decisions. And because above all, we know that it is not their decisions, but it is your will, your protection that guarantees our freedoms and our security. Above all, we know there is no security other than that which is in the truth of your word, and that there is no real freedom other than that which comes through the application of your word. Jesus Christ said that it is through your, your, your truth that we are free. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand your word this evening as we continue our study to understand salvation and that we might... Uh, come to a greater understanding of all that you have done for us 
in saving us and bringing us into your royal family. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This evening we continue our study on salvation. We began by looking at the fact that there is a barrier between God and man. That barrier is not just simply a sin barrier. That's often how we express it in evangelism. That's probably how it was expressed to us when somebody explained the gospel to us. But there is more to it than that. It is not simply a a one-dimensional superficial problem, but one that has a number of dimensions. The first brick that we looked at was the problem of sin, the problem that we have fallen short of God's standard, we have rebelled against God's standard, we have twisted God's standard, and as such we are in rebellion against God. Second, there is a penalty assessed by the Supreme Court of Heaven, and because God is righteous and just, he must assess a penalty against every single human being, and so every single human being is judged guilty by the Supreme Court of Heaven and a penalty has been assessed. Third, there's the problem of the character of God, and that is that man is unrighteous, but God is righteous, and a righteous God cannot have fellowship with unrighteous creatures. So God's character must be addressed. Fourth, there's the problem of man's lack of righteousness, that he is minus R, and before man can have a relationship with God, not only does God's character have to be addressed, but the problem of man's sinfulness has to be addressed. Fifth, there's the problem of the actual penalty that has been assigned to man, and that is spiritual death. He is born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And then the final brick in the barrier is our position in Adam, because we are identified with uh, Adam, who is the federal head or the representative head of the human race. In the Bible, the term in Adam is a term assigned to every single human being, because we are were biologically and spiritually present when Adam disobeyed God and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, the Bible presents it that Adam's choice was our choice, Adam's sin is our sin, and Adam's penalty is our penalty. Therefore, the Scripture says, In Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15:22a. Now, we have seen in our study as well that all of these problems are resolved at the cross. The first is solved by unlimited atonement, a substitutionary atonement that pays the, uh, pays the penalty, covers the sin for all mankind. The penalty is paid through redemption. It is through redemption that the price is paid. And third, the character of God problem is resolved through propitiation and expiation. This occurs for every single human being in the human race, and throughout human history. These, this is the absolute side of what Christ did on the cross. This is true for every single human being. But the next three bricks are covered only when the individual puts his faith alone in Christ alone. When you put your faith alone in Christ alone and trust him alone for your salvation, at that instant we have seen that God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and simultaneously declares you to be justified. At that same time, you are regenerated. God the Holy Spirit creates and it simultaneously imparts to you a new human spirit, and you become a new creature in Christ. This is the final aspect of the barrier. Now, the concept of federal headship, a representative headship that is that is central to understanding the problem of being in Adam, is a concept that's abstract and is difficult for many, many people to understand. What does it mean to be in Christ, and what is this concept of federal headship? Ellie Maxwell, in his book, Born Crucified, gives the following illustration, which, as far as analogies go, is about, his best, is about the best that we can get. He writes, in the early years of the Civil War, now some of you may call it the war between the states, others may call it the war of northern aggression, and then there are those who call it the war of the rebellion, but it all depends on where you live. There was a Mr. Pratt who was conscripted for service in the Union Army. He did not wish to serve because he had family commitments. A friend of his, a Mr. Wyatt, 
volunteered to enter the army in his place. See, during the Civil War, you could do that. If you got drafted, you could just pay somebody to take your place, or, or uh, they could volunteer to go in your place. So Mr. Wyatt volunteered to enter the army in his place, legally bearing his identity as a bona fide substitute. As the narrative records, Mr. Wyatt was killed in action somewhere in Tennessee. In the confusion of the record system of the Union draft, the call came around again for Mr. Pratt. In the meantime, the death notice had been sent back, verifying that Wyatt was killed in action. When Pratt appeared before the authorities, he said, I died in the person of my substitute. Legally, I am beyond the reach of the draft. And technically, that was true. When Wyatt died, Pratt legally died. This is, by analogy, something like what legally took place for every human being in Adam, that at the time of our physical birth, we are born spiritually dead because of the federal headship of Adam. He represented us, and so in his spiritual death, we all died. So the starting point to understand the concept of what it means to be in Christ or in Adam is to recognize that we are born, identified with Adam, the federal head of the human race, and thus we are born spiritually dead, unrighteous, and unsaved. That's point number one. Man is born identified with Adam, who is the federal head of the human race, and thus we are all born spiritually dead, unrighteous, and unsaved. 1 Corinthians 15.22 states, For as in Adam all die. Now, the second point is that at the instant of faith alone, in Christ alone, the believer is identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This identification is called by the technical term baptism by the Holy Spirit. Romans 6, 2, and 3 puts it this way. Paul says, uh, may it never be, how shall we who, who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, the word baptism is a word that for some people always brings up the concept of water, especially if you were raised a Baptist. The word baptizo, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O, means to dip to plunge, or to immerse. Now, there's a purpose of that is the technical meaning of the word. So every time you see the word baptism in Scripture, the verb to baptize, you can insert this word dip, plunge, or immerse. Back uh, when they were translating the Bible into English, uh, before the Reformation even by Tyndale, there was a tremendous controversy over baptism. And the Roman Catholic Church was practicing an infant baptism at that time, a baptism by sprinkling. And so rather than getting into all of the theological problems of translating the word immerse, which they weren't doing, they decided to skirt the whole issue and just transliterate the word into English. So we end up with the word baptism, which uh, really is not an English word and didn't mean anything to anybody. But the basic meaning is to dip, plunge, or immerse. But the reason you would dip or plunge something into something else had a significance to it. The ancient Greek troops, when they were raw recruits, would take their spears before they would go into battle, and they would dip their spear into a bucket of pig's blood in order to identify the spears with blood as an initiation rite before they would go into battle. And that's the significance of baptism is twofold. It is, first of all, uh, identification, to identify the spear with blood. And the second significance is that it is an initiation. It occurs at the beginning of something. It initiates a person into a new state. So the significance of baptism is, first of all, identification, and secondly, initiation. And the believer at the instant of salvation is identified with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Because of that, 
Jesus' death is our death. Jesus' victory over death is our victory over death. And Jesus' payment for sin is our payment for sin. In the same way that Adam's choice was our choice, and Adam's sin was our sin, and Adam's penalty is our penalty, Jesus Christ's payment for, for sin is our payment for sin. Jesus Christ's death is our death. Jesus Christ's victory is our victory. So this is what takes place at that instant. It is a legal identification with Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Secondly, it is an initiation. It initiates us into a new spiritual life because of what takes place at the same time, which is regeneration. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit initiates us into a new life, and it is this baptism of the Holy Spirit that is unique to this church age. It did not happen, it did not occur until the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Christ was crucified. So the important thing to understand is that our identification with Christ is is brought about through the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of confusion about this doctrine of the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. So our third point is going to simply focus on the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Now, you'll always get calls. Now, since I don't have a church number ringing at the house, I don't get too many calls like this now. But in the past, I've gotten calls sitting at the desk. Somebody will call the church, and you pick up the church phone, and somebody says, is this a spirit-filled church? Are y'all, do you all believe in the baptism of the Spirit? And I always say, yes, we do. But we do not believe that the Pentecostals have a clue as to what the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit is all about. And the very fact that you ask the question the way you do indicate that you really need to come to our church so that you can learn what the Bible says. I used to love to do that to people. You always get the charismatics, and they always ask the wrong question. One of the reasons they got in the trap that they're in is because they built their understanding of doctrine off of the English translation. And as we'll see in our study of the baptism, that the same phrase is used in all the baptism of the Holy Spirit verses. You have uh, in Matthew, it's baptism with the Spirit. But they tra- the translators in the King James Version, at least they had a different group operating on, the, on Paul's epistles, when they, the group that translated the Gospels translated it baptism with the Spirit, and they translated the phrase in 1 Corinthians 12:13 with the English phrase baptism by the Spirit. For by one Spirit we have all been baptized. And so English readers would look at it and say, oh, well, over here in the Gospels we have a baptism with the Spirit. And over here in 1 Corinthians we have a baptism by the Spirit. So we have two different baptisms. So you have one that occurs at salvation and one that occurs after salvation. And then in the development of Pentecostal theology, because they've got a wrong starting point, all of a sudden the baptism by the Spirit, which is secondary, becomes a sign of super-spirituality. But it's all based on a failure to understand the original Greek, which has the same phraseology in all of the verses. So it was wrong to translate this phrase in two different ways. So uh, we ha- in understanding the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, we have to recognize that this is something that is unique to the church age. It did not occur in the Old Testament, and it could not occur until Jesus Christ had gone to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. The baptism by the Holy Spirit was first prophesied by John the Baptist uh, just prior to Jesus, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. We find this in... Matthew 3.11, John said, As for me, I baptize you with water. And the Greek phrase is in hudity. The preposition in plus a dative case indicates the concept of means. He's not talking about putting them into water. He's talking about the means of identification. Remember, the significance of baptism is identification. So he's saying, I baptize you by means of water for repentance. Now, pay attention to these two prepositions. We have in and then for repentance, ace. That indicates the purpose of the identification. The initiation was into a new state. Just like that that Greek hoplite soldier would take his spear and dip it into blood, and now he would be a, quote, symbolically a blooded warrior. He, had, he was now in a new condition. 
That's what happens with water baptism, with John's baptism. He was in a new state, a new state of repentance, and that's always indicated by this ace clause. What we're going to discover is this is a, a formulaic statement. Then John said, But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And he uses the same preposition in plus a dative case in numity by means of the Spirit and fire. He will identify you or baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the, this same statement is also recorded in Mark 1.8 and in Luke 3.16. And then Jesus is the last one to to prophesy the coming of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.5. And there Jesus said, For John baptized with water, who did he just the dative case, by means of water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit in numity, not many days from now. And what I'm showing you is that in all of these cases you have the same basic terminology. This Greek phrase, in numity, is found in every single one of these verses, whether you're talking about the Matthew, Mark, Luke verses, Acts verse, or the later verses in 1 Corinthians 10. The dative case indicates means, the means by which this new identification, this new state is brought about. Now, there's two other key passages that we have looked at in the past that bring this together. In 1 Corinthians 10.2, we have the next mention of the word baptism. But this isn't talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember, there's eight different baptisms in the, New Te- in the, uh, in the Bible. You have the John's baptism. You have Jesus' baptism, which was unique. And then this is Moses' baptism. All were baptized into Moses, talking about the Jews when they came out of Israel in the Exodus. All were identified with Moses. This is their new state indicated by that ace clause. Remember, I said back in Matthew 3.11 that the new state that you're initiated into is indicated by that ace clause. So we have in 1 Corinthians 10.2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And that, that phrase, in the cloud and in the sea, The cloud represented the Shekinah glory, and the sea is when they crossed the Red Sea, is N plus the dative. They were identified with Moses by means of the cloud and the sea, crossing the Red Sea. So there's one phrase that indicates the new state that you're in, and there's this other phrase indicated by an N plus the dative case that indicates the means by which this is accomplished. Now we come to 1 Corinthians 12.13. 1 Corinthians 12.13, we have the phrase, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now there when we have the phrase, by one Spirit, that's our N plus the dative again. That's, as we've seen in the other baptism formulas, this expresses the means. By means of one Spirit we were all baptized into what? That into is a translation of the Greek preposition ace, meaning into, this is the new state. The new state is we are taken and we're placed into the body of Christ. And that is uh, the same as our identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, which occurs at the instant of salvation. So I want you to notice this in terms of this chart. In Matthew 3.11, the baptizer is John. He is the one who's taking this, this individual, and he is going to plunge them into the River Jordan. He's going to immerse them into the River Jordan. He is the one who performs the action. The, term for, for the one who performs the action, the technical grammatical term is he's the agent. He's the one who performs the action. The means that he uses is water, and the state that he is initiating them into is the state of repentance. Now, in parallel to that, at the second part of the verse, we have Christ as the baptizer. He is the one who is the subject of the verb. He performs the action of baptizing. The means that he is going to use is the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't state the new state. That's That's not part of the verse. All we're told is that the one who comes after me, he will baptize you by means of the Holy Spirit, and that he is Jesus Christ. He performs the action of the verb. Now, we run into a little problem here because in typical 
uh, Bible churches and doctrinal churches, it has often been stated that the in, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the one who places the believer in Christ. Now, if your verb is place or identify, in that sentence, who is the subject of the verb? The subject of the verb is the Holy Spirit. The verb here is an active voice verb. This is why grammar is important. However, what we have in 1 Corinthians 12.13, let me back up, is for by one spirit we were all baptized. That is a passive verb. In a passive verb, the subject the subject receives the action. So the subject is we were all baptized, the subject receives the action, and an agent performs the action. Now, in the verse, let's go back to the verse. In the verse, who performs the action? It doesn't say who performs the action. See, it can't be the Spirit because, as we've already seen in all the other passages, it is the Spirit that, who's the means. He's not the one who performs it. In the earlier passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John said, Jesus will baptize you by means of the Spirit. And so here we have, for by means of the Spirit, we were all baptized. So who performs the action of the verb? Well, that's performed by Jesus Christ still. See, it doesn't change. It's just unstated. You don't have to, the passages don't state every element in the formula every time. The baptizer in 1 Corinthians 12:13 is not mentioned. It is Jesus Christ. If it's not Jesus Christ, if it's the Holy Spirit performing the action in 1 Corinthians 12:13, you've got a problem. Now you've got a Pentecostal problem because remember, if you got Christ doing the baptizing in Matthew and the Holy Spirit doing the baptizing in 1 Corinthians, you're going to, that's two different baptisms. And unfortunately, that little oversight was made, and so we've got to correct it and recognize that, that what we have in 1 Corinthians 12:13 is a statement that is by means of the Holy Spirit that we are introduced into a new state, which is the body of Christ. That should correct that chart. The new state is stated there, and it's the body of Christ. For by one one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That's what that should say. The new state is one body. Now, let me put it in a chart and let it look like this. In the Gospels, what you have is John is the agent, and he takes the individual and he immerses them in water, which is identification with cleansing so that they now come out of the water in a new status of repentance for the kingdom of God. John is the agent. He's the one who performs the action. He uses water to bring about cleansing, to put the individual, identify him with this new state of repentance. Then when you get into 1 Corinthians, Jesus Christ is the agent. He uses the Holy Spirit as the means of cleansing, of identifying the individual believer with himself in his death, burial, and resurrection, so that he is in a new state, he's in Christ, in the body of Christ. Jesus Christ performs the act. He uses the Holy Spirit to bring about cleansing, just as John the Baptist used water as a symbol of cleansing. The Holy Spirit brings about cleansing from all pre-salvation sins, and we enter into a new state in the body of Christ, identified with Christ. Notice what Titus 3.5 says. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. How? What's the means of salvation? This doesn't give you all the means, but this is the key for, for Paul in Titus 3.5. By the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an extremely difficult passage to deal with grammatically. And as I look at it now, and it's, it's very complex, what you have is by the washing and renewal. How is he saves us? By washing and renewing. 
The washing is related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that takes place simultaneously with regeneration. The washing itself is connected to regeneration, and secondly, by renewal. And both washing and renewal are affected by the Holy Spirit. That last phrase, by the Holy Spirit, modifies both verbs, the washing and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. So what we have here is a fantastic picture that connects all of these doctrines and brings them all together. We tend to break them all down into, into different th- elements, and they're spoken of and we're taught about them in terms of different elements, but they're so interconnected in one one whole and in terms of everything that God does for us that it's just a marvelous picture of an irreversible process. See, when, a, when a, somebody comes along and says, well, I think I've committed some sin and I've I'm going to lose my salvation. Well, they haven't a clue what God did to save them at the instant of salvation. Salvation is not just a matter of, oh, gee, you trusted Christ, now you're saved. So many fantastic things happen at the instant of salvation that it's impossible to reverse them. You are made a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. So this covers the concept of positional truth. This is our new position in Christ. Now the fourth point, all of that just covered the third point, which is the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with his own death, burial, and resurrection. In that identification, we are cleansed, and regeneration takes place. All post-salvation sins are wiped out, and we have and we become a new creature in Christ. Furthermore, this has implications, for example, in Galatians 3:23 to 25, which also refers to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that because of this, the distinctions of race, sex, and economics, all these social distinctions that were significant in the Old Testament, no longer matter. Remember in the Old Testament, if you were a woman, you couldn't get in the temple. If you were a Gentile, you couldn't get in the temple. If you were a slave, you couldn't get in the temple. Temple worship was restricted to adult male Jews. In Galatians 3.23 to 25, it emphasizes that it's neither male nor female, bond or free, uh, Jew nor Greek. We are all one in the body of Christ. So it is this baptism of the Holy Spirit that erases these distinctions in terms of our the function of our royal priesthood. So the baptism by the Holy Spirit identifies us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and enters us into a new relationship with Jesus Christ in the body of Christ where the old distinctions of race, sex, ethnic background, economics, and social distinctions no longer matter. Baptism by the Holy Spirit is that which began the church age on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended on those who were present uh, when the disciples spoke in tongues, and it was only the, the disciples who spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 2. So, and it is also the baptism by the Holy Spirit that is the basis for understanding positional truth, Romans 6, 2, and 3. And then finally, we have to recognize that baptism by the Holy Spirit is not an experience. You don't feel it. You won't know it. The only way you learn about it is after you're saved, you get into the Word, and you begin to learn, you begin to study, and you begin to see what the Word teaches. All of that is the third point, baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. Fourth point, the believer's union with Christ removes him from a position of condemnation. Because we are united with Christ, that is the flow of Paul's argument from Romans 6 through Romans 8, that because of our identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, therefore, Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We were condemned in Adam, but now there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Fifth, the believer's union with Christ qualifies him to live with God forever. Because we are united with Christ, we are qualified to live with God forever. And because of our identification with Christ, there are certain things that we share with Jesus Christ. First of all, we share eternal life with him, 1 John 5, 
11 and 12. His life is now our life. His eternal life is imputed to us at the instant of salvation. Second, we have his righteousness, which is also imputed to us at that simultaneously at the time of our faith alone in Christ alone. Second Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. We share his election, Ephesians 1.4. We share his destiny, Ephesians 1.5. We share his sonship, John 1.12 and in 1 John 3, 1 and 2. We share his sonship. We are all adopted into the royal family of God and become adult sons in the family with the rights and privileges thereto at the instant of salvation. We share his sanctification, 1 Corinthians 1.2 and 1 Corinthians 1.30. We Share his, we will share his kingdom, and we will rule and reign with him in his kingdom, Second Peter 1.11. And he is our priest. We share this royal priesthood, Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. All of this is ours. This is all part of those 40 things I talk about sometimes that happen to us at the instant of salvation. All of this becomes ours at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone. Furthermore, point number six, at that instant of union with Christ, the believer becomes a new spiritual creation, a new spiritual creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And that is, all things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. At that instant, you are a new creature. You've been regenerated. You're a new individual. And we are, we are to be renewed. That Ephesians 4.22 tells us that this is a new creation according to righteousness, holiness, and truth. Point number seven, union with Christ guarantees the eternal security of the believer. Because you are, we are united with Christ, we cannot be severed from Christ. We cannot be removed from him. Romans 8:38 and 39 for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus nothing can separate us from that love and then point 8 we must recognize that our being in Christ is not progressive it is something that is instantaneous and takes place when we express our faith alone in Christ alone. It is not related to human merit or human ability. It's not based on anything we do. It's not based on anything that God sees in us. It is based on His grace. It is undeserved, unmerited. It is unchangeable. It is unchangeable. It is irreversible. Once we are united with Christ, we can't go back. And it is known only through learning doctrine after salvation. And finally, it is the basis, according to Romans 6, it's not an end in itself, but it is the basis for the new spiritual life. Paul says the reason we are to be able to live free from sin is because we were freed from sin in our identification with his death, burial, and resurrection. So let's summarize this in a final chart, a contrast between what we were in Adam and what we receive in Christ. In Adam, Adam was our federal head. He is our representative. What Adam did, we did. In Adam's fall, we sinned all, the old Puritan primer said. But in Christ, he is the head of the body. We are the body and he is the head. He is the one to whom we are now united. In Adam, we were spiritually dead. We were without hope. We were severed from the Father. We could not understand, uh, understand the things of God, and we were uh, incapable of, being sa uh, of, of saving ourselves. In Christ, we are made alive. We are alive in Him. Third, in Adam, we are condemned, but in Christ, we are justified. In Adam, we were condemned, 
in Christ we are justified. At Adam, we were born without righteousness. We had a relative righteousness. We could do good in the eyes of other people, but it wasn't a good that, that merited God's blessing. In Christ, we have his righteousness. We are plus R. And finally, in Adam, we're just a living soul. We are sukikas. We are soulish man, not a spiritual. But in Christ, he is a quickening spirit. He has made us alive. We are made alive together with him. This is the contrast between what we have in Adam and in Christ. Now, we've looked at the barrier. We've looked at the whole barrier that we have, and that is that that we had all of these deficits against us. Sin, penalty of sin, character of God, minus R, spiritual death and position in Adam. Yet, God in his manifold wisdom and in his grace provided a perfect solution to every problem. Unlimited atonement, redemption, propitiation, expiation, imputation, justification, regeneration, and our position in Christ. So that there is no more Barrier. The barrier has been removed. Now, the doctrine, doctrine that relates to the total removal of the barrier is the doctrine of reconciliation. The doctrine of reconciliation means that this problem in its entirety has been removed. Let me give you a definition. Point number one under the doctrine of reconciliation is a definition of reconciliation. For one easy word, remember I like to give you just one word definitions that you can hang, excuse me, hang everything on. A one word definition that you can hang everything on is change. Reconciliation mean, it means a change of relationship. Definition. Reconciliation is all that Jesus Christ did on the cross to remove the barrier between God and sinful man. Romans 5:11 through 15 and 2 Corinthians 5:18 to 19. All that Christ did on the cross to remove the barrier between God and sinful man. It is the work of God in which he changes us from his enemies to his friends. This means that this is a work of God toward man which makes possible and actual man's fellowship with God. It is a work of God toward man. Remember, reconciliation is manward. This is a key issue. God is not reconciled to us. We are reconciled to God. What God changes, legally changes the relationship of the world to himself, as we'll see. It's not that God changes. See, the Godward aspect is propitiation. That is where God's righteousness and justice are satisfied. The manward aspect of Salvation is reconciliation. He, man and the world, is reconciled to God. Reconciliation is manward. Propitiation is Godward. Now let's look at the key Greek words related to the doctrine of reconciliation. Point number two, the key Greek words. First of all, you have the verb katalasso. K-A-T-A-L-A-S-S-O. Long O. Katalasso. Katalasso means to change someone from a state of hostility into a state of tranquility and peace. Remember, we just recently studied uh, uh, in our study on Second on 1 Corinthians 7 with regard to divorce and, uh, and marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, I think it was verse uh, 9, that if a, a believing spouse leaves the marriage there to stay unmarried or be reconciled or be reconciled to change someone from a state of hostility into a state of tranquility and peace to change from a state of enmity to reconciliation in the use of this verb god is the subject that means god performs the action of reconciliation and when the verb is in the passive voice, then man is the subject as the recipient. In the passive voice, 
Man is the subject as the recipient of reconciliation. Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer states that reconciliation is the change on the part of one party induced by an action on the part of another party. The second key Greek word is the noun, katalego, katalego, K-A-T-A-L-L-E-G-O. And this is the noun form meaning reconciliation, the noun form, simply the katalaso is to reconcile. Katalego is reconciliation, the change that has occurred from enmity to friendship. Then you have a third word, apa katalaso, apo K-A-T-A-L-L-A-S-S-O. And the prefix of the preposition apa intensifies the verb. This is found in Ephesians 2.16 and Colossians uh, 1.22. Ephesians 2.16 and Colossians 1.22. And this means to transfer from one status to another status, from a status of enmity to, from, uh, excuse me, enmity and hostility to friendship. And then a fourth word that is used is the word Irene, where we get the English name Irene. E-I-R-E-N-E, Irene. And arene means peace, and it is the result of justification and reconciliation. Because we have, we are reconciled, we have peace with God. That is, peace is a lack of hostility between man and God. So point number two covers the Greek words which emphasize this change of status from hostility to friendship. Point number three, we have to recognize that all human beings are born sinners and enemies of God. We are said that we are at enmity with God. We are God's enemies, Romans 5.10 and Colossians 1.21. We are enemies of God. Every human being, even that cute little baby, is an enemy of God because of his position in Adam, because he lacks righteousness. Now, the fourth question gets at the heart of understanding it, and I'm raising a question. Is the sinner at enmity with God, or is God at enmity with the sinner? See, man is at enmity with God. Man disobeyed God. Man's the one who declares war on God. And the point of this is to emphasize that it is not God that is changed or reconciled, but it is man. God does the reconciling, but he does it through the death of his son. It's interesting, the, the concept of reconciliation, while it's illustrated in the peace offerings in the Old Testament, you don't have any concept of reconciliation in the Old Testament because it's not until Christ actually pays the penalty for sin that the status of the world can be changed legally in relationship to God. So God does the reconciling through the death of his son. Man is reconciled. And it's a change of status for the world. Now, the world does not mean just believers. The world means the entire inhabited uh, planet, the human race. Second Corinthians 5.19 states, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So there is a, 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 a broad picture of reconciliation and a narrow picture. The broad picture is that the status of the world is changed as a result of what Christ did on the cross. Furthermore, in Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
Second Corinthians 5, 8, 18 states, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Now there it's talking about the narrow application, which is to each individual believer. But in 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's the broad aspect. The key verses for understanding reconciliation are found in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17-21, Romans 5.6-11, and Ephesians 2.16. And I'm just going to comment on these as we go through them, looking at them on the, on the uh, overhead. 2 Corinthians 5.18, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us, and here us is a reference to believers, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. God is the subject of the verb. He is the one who performs the action of reconciliation. We are reconciled to him. He's the absolute standard. His standard doesn't change. He is not modified. He doesn't pick up a broader sense of compassion and say, well, you know, they're just creatures. They couldn't have done any better. God affects a change in the legal status of man through Jesus Christ. Now we'll get to the rest of the verse later, but that emphasizes the gospel ministry and the responsibility of, of evangelism, that in evangelism we are telling unbelievers the fact that God has reconciled you to him. And you have to accept that if you, recon- if, if you accept it, then it is a personal reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. See, they're guilty because of Adam's guilt and the imputation of Adam's original sin, not their own personal sin. So it's not, you don't emphasize their personal sin when you are witnessing. 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. The whole concept of being a royal ambassador is grounded on the fact that God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is the message of evangelism. Then in Romans 5 we have a further development of the doctrine based on what Paul discussed in Romans 4, and that is justification. Because we have been justified by faith, Romans 5.1 starts off with a causal adverbial participle. Because we have been justified by faith, is the correct translation, we have peace with God. Because we're declared just, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that is talking about the narrow application of reconciliation. And then in verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. From verse 8 on in Romans 5, sometime when you're reading this on your own, underline every reference to the death of Christ. It's in every verse. 5.9, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved, having now been justified in the past tense, because we have been justified, that occurred at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we shall be saved from the wrath, that is, divine discipline. That is, we shall be saved from wrath in terms of eternal judgment. It's future tense. For if when we were enemies, that is, the personal acceptance of reconciliation, when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, that is, the abundant life that Jesus talks about, that John talks about in John 10. Jesus said, I didn't come like the thief to steal and destroy. I came to give life and to give it abundantly. So through Jesus' life, we are saved. That is phase two salvation, where we grow and mature as believers by imitating Christ and his reliance upon God the Holy Spirit in living the spiritual life. Then we have a couple of other verses in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh, literally by means of the body of his flesh, through death. Jesus Christ carried our sins in his body on the cross. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. 
Reconciliation is toward man. God accomplishes it through Jesus Christ on the cross. Then we come to the sixth point. Peace is a synonym for reconciliation. Peace is a synonym for reconciliation because with reconciliation, man is no longer at enmity with God, but is now at peace with God. Peace and reconciliation are used as synonyms in such passages as Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, where we read, For he himself is our peace who has made both one. Now there it's talking about the both being made one or Jew and Gentile. They're both made one, and he's broken down the middle wall of separation, which you see sin not only separates man from man, it separates man from God. And so in breaking down the wall of separation, there's the breakdown of the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, but also between man and God. And because the wall of separation between man and God has been broken down, the wall of separation between man and man has broken down. Verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man. That is, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That relates to the baptism of the Holy Spirit we studied earlier. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, that is, Gentiles, and to those who were near, that is, Jews. So peace and reconciliation are synonyms, and all of this was accomplished, reconciliation was accomplished by Christ on the cross. And all believers are, but that's provisional, it has to do with the legal status of the world, and then individual application occurs at the instant a person puts his faith alone in Christ alone. One of the important applications of reconciliation is that because there is now peace between God and man, there should be peace between human beings, peace in terms of relationship. This is carried out, first of all, through evangelism. It's illustrated in Ephesians 2:17 that Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and those who were near. And it is the function of witnessing in our ambassadorship, according to 2 Corinthians 5:18 to 20. So in summary, reconciliation is the total picture of God removing the sin barrier so man can be saved. Now let's look at our, at our barrier chart one more time. In reconciliation, the barrier is torn down. Now I want you to notice... What happens in reconciliation is these bottom three bricks of the barrier, sin, penalty of sin, character of God, are all handled through substitutionary atonement, redemption, and propitiation. Propitiation, 1 John 2, 2, is for the whole world. Redemption, according to uh, 1 Peter 2, is for all mankind. Unlimited atonement is substitutionary. He died for all, one died for all, so that this is accomplished for everyone. That is true for every single human being. It doesn't matter whether it's Adolf Hitler, whether it's Saddam Hussein, whether it's the Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, it doesn't matter how horrible they are. It doesn't matter if they're a couple of snipers sitting down on death row or if they're some sweet uh, little old lady sitting in some liberal Protestant church. They're all equally condemned, but all that condemnation is wiped out by the cross. But it is not applied except in the top three bricks when there is a personal decision made. So the issue is no longer sin. It's no longer guilt. It's no longer what you've done. The issue is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The issue isn't how sinful you were in past life. It doesn't matter how horrible you were. It doesn't matter how guilty you feel right now. What matters is what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and at the cross he paid the penalty so that the issue now is, are you willing to accept that penalty? When the individual accepts that penalty, he's imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ and justified. He's regenerate. He receives a new nature. He is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and he is placed by the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, and all that is accomplished by God's perfect plan of salvation.
Now, one consequence or application of reconciliation has to do not simply with man's reconciliation to God, but reconciliation in the realm of personality conflict in the Christian life. And this is most clearly uh, exemplified in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 11 to 15, which we have just recently studied on Sunday night. And that is a reference to the fact that if a spouse leaves the marriage, a believing spouse, a believer leaves, they are not to remarry, but they are to either stay single or be reconciled. And then at the end of that section that deals with divorce, uh, Paul draws out the point that we were called not to antagonism, not to conflict, but we are called to peace. And so a believer needs to apply that in the realm of personal relationships. Whenever there are, per, I find that whenever there are personality conflicts between two Christians, that for the most part somebody's operating on carnality. That if I'm with somebody else who's really positive and really into the Word, that you can work through just about anything. But if one or the other person is in carnality, operating on arrogance, oper- operating on uh, on the flesh, then you're going to have major problems. That uh, the Bible doesn't seem to recognize personality conflicts like we get from psychobabble, but the Bible recognizes conflicts based on arrogance, selfishness, uh, self-centeredness, self-absorption, and that is what causes breakdowns in relationship. Problems in personality are often caused by these sins. They're caused by fear, anger, uh, self-pity, gossip, slander, maligning. They are not caused by that product of spiritual growth caused by walking by means of the Spirit. Now, what we've done in our study of salvation so far is to look at what was accomplished on the cross. Now, that covers all the basic doctrines, but there's more to it. How do we appropriate salvation? What is the relationship of faith to works? Can a person who is regenerate live worse than they ever lived before they were saved? These are important questions that have been raised, and uh, many people are very confused over these, especially some problem passages such as uh, some passages in John chapter 15, problems in James 2, and we will begin to look at some of those problem passages starting next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to be reminded of everything that you have done for us in our so great salvation. We pray that a greater understanding of these truths would spur us on to greater obedience and to spiritual growth, advancing towards spiritual maturity. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.